Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter number 5, we, we spent a lot of weeks going through chapter number 4, and uh, I can't even remember what I preached last week, but I don't, was it the conclusion of chapter 4? I think I had another message in between, actually, after I wrapped up our study in this chapter, but... Uh, but anyway, I'm going to really wrap it up tonight by looking at chapter 5 and just the first two verses. Uh, I don't know of a better way to to come to a conclusion on our thoughts from the last chapter, which had to do with walking worthy. That was the theme of the chapter, and we tried to look at that from every angle that is presented there in the context but look at verse number 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, Be ye therefore, and naturally that word therefore takes us back to the conclusion of chapter 4, so we really need to look at what is said here. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. I can't think of a better way to wrap up the thought of walking worthy than to consider what he says here, which has to do with walk in love. And in these two verses, there are three things I want you to look at quickly tonight. There is a, there is a pattern, actually a person, to imitate verse number one. The beginning of verse number two, we see a precept to initiate, and then we see a picture to illustrate in the last part of verse number two. So let's look first of all at a pattern or a person to imitate. And it's very clear, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. You know, it's a shame that that young people have so few good role models and that they are so easily influenced. This isn't anything new. It's always been that way. You go back to, you know, uh, the 50s whenever... Uh, Whenever some of us were growing up, and uh, Elvis and uh, things like that, and it's, it's really amazing how I can remember in junior high the the thing got started. You know, the popular thing was if you were going with a girl, you know, uh, there there for a while it was she'd wear the your ring, you know, around her neck on a chain, and uh, and that was real popular. In fact. Elvis even had a song about that, won't you wear my ring around your neck, da, da, da. But anyway, somewhere along the line, it became popular to put a dog collar on them. I, I, and the girls, the girls were literally wearing dog collars of their own volition. Nobody made them do it. That, just you saw a girl with a dog collar on, you knew she's already taken and you, you better leave her alone. You got to remember, I was raised in the Ozarks. 
What I'm trying to say is every generation has been affected by the things around them. That's why peer pressure is so important and so dangerous. We see young people today wanting to imitate Madonna or whoever it is. And it's so sad to see young people wanting to be like these these popular people out here in the world. And the problem is they admire the wrong people and it leads them down the wrong path. And that's why the world is getting worse and worse. Bev and I were in a store this week and we got to, I don't know really how it started, but in the conversation with the clerk in the store... And I tell you, if this woman, if it hadn't been a woman, I think I would have almost had her to come and preach. Because what she said was so spot on in regards to the world that we're living in. And so she was, I'm assuming, somewhere around our age. And and she was talking about the fact, you know, the way that it used to be. And the girls learned from the mothers and the boys learned from the fathers. And, you know, the household was a certain kind of a way. And... It was this was back before mothers worked. I, you know, whenever I was growing up, it's unheard of that a, the mother works outside the home. No, nobody did that. And uh, and all of a sudden, women's liberation and all the women went off to the factories and the places of business and what have you. And it's just all been downhill ever since that. And the Bible says, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. I'm not blaming all the women for that. Please don't understand it that way. But understand, we've got a problem in the world today. It's getting worse and worse. And and a part of this is, is that people people worship the wrong people, as it were. They idolize the wrong people. But how do we respond to this problem? We look around and we say, man, the world's getting so bad, I gotta get my kid out of the public school, gotta get him into a Christian school. You know, that, that's well and good, but that's just part of the problem, you know? There's problems absolutely everywhere we look. So how do we respond to what we see going on in the world around us today where our young people have so few godly role models? Some few years ago, a preacher by the name of Ray Stedman made an important point, and and I jotted it down because he hit the nail on the head. And here's what he said. The purpose of the church is not to make the world a better place to live in. I've said that so many times. But here's the point. It is to make a better people to live in it. And then as a kind of byproduct, and always as that, these people will make the world a better place. That's why I keep saying we're not going to solve the problems of the world by getting certain people in office, you know. And I think that's important, who we vote for. I think it's important who we select as our president and governor and so on and so forth. Uh, all of that is important, but we're not going to change the course of the world by just doing that, the only way to change the world is for people to be changed within. And the only way anybody changes from within is through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And the greatest contribution that you and I can make to the world that we live in is to lead someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, so. 
here we are, stuck between a rock and a hard place trying to figure out what to do. Well, how, how do we... How do we then become better? You know, Stedman was saying we're not trying to make the world a better place. We're trying to make a better people to live in it so they can, you know, uh, influence it as a result. How do we become better? Well, right here's the answer. Notice what he says here, that we are to, verse number one, to be therefore followers of God as dear children. In other words, we're to imitate, we are to follow Christ. He's the standard. He is the model. He is the example. You see, it's not good enough to just be as good as other Christians. We tend to do that. Bev and I was talking, I think it was today or yesterday, talking about certain things and the difference between today and the way it was back Whenever I started preaching, and there's some stark differences, you wouldn't want me to deal with them. Believe me, you wouldn't want this message to go there. Let me tell you, church today, people today, professing Christians, it's nothing, nothing like it was 40, 50 years ago. Things have changed so drastically. And, uh, you know, we scratch our head and wonder, well, was that generation totally wrong? You know, did, you know, did the world finally wake up and everybody get it right? And you know, and so, so everything's always been like it ought to be or like it is right now. I mean, is, is think about it. Should everything always in the past should it always have been the way that it is today? Or maybe we ought to think about. You know, those folks had it right back then, and we need to we need to go back to the old paths and rediscover where we ought to be. The the point is, it's not good enough for you or for me to be as good as other Christian people. It's listen, it's not even good enough for you to be better than the best people in the church. You know, so many times we think, well. And whether we intend to do it or not, I think most of us at some time in some regards are guilty of maybe comparing ourselves to someone else, at least in some area of our life, you know. We're in church, you know, every single service, and oh, so-and-so, you know, they, 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 they miss a lot of services, so here we are making comparisons, and we get it in our mind, you know, if I can just be the best of of everybody in the church, that would be good enough. But listen, it's not. That is not our goal. Our goal is what? Well, our goal is to become Christ-like. In fact, it says in Romans eight twenty nine that God has predestinated that we be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what God is working toward. That is what God one day in glory will perfect. We will be like Him. But the Lord is working toward that. Now, listen, if that's what we're going to be in eternity, that's what we should strive to, to be becoming even now. And this likeness to Christ ought to be something that is natural. And I want you to notice here how the believers are described. This is wonderful. He says, notice, they are dear children. Isn't that a wonderful expression? 
I mean, what could be more wonderful than having God for your father? What could be more wonderful than being God's dear children? You see, that makes us so much more than just a creature of his creation. That God created me, that makes me special. God created, you know, the skunk and the mosquito and uh, all the other creatures, you know. So we're all a part of God's creation. But we're talking here about people that are a part of God's family. We're His dear children. I love the way John put it in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. He said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now. Get that. It's not something we're going to become someday in the future. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but whenever we shall see Him, we shall be as He is. What a glorious future we have. And because of that, numerous verses tell us that this fact that we are God's dear children should govern what we do. You see... It's only natural that children bear some resemblance to their parents. And, uh, you know, we think about, you know, a boy or, or a girl being like her mother, a boy being like his father and what have you. Have you. And, and, and it's just something that happens. And, you, you know, you, you hear people say, well, you know, I can see the resemblance. You you look a lot like your daddy or you look a lot like your mother. You see, that's all natural. And let me tell you, whenever whenever we think about being a Christian and we talk about being God's children, other people ought to see something of God in us. They they ought to see as a result of our lifestyle, our manner of living, that we are different from the world, that there's something like God in us, that our behavior has been transformed. Notice the word followers. That's a really interesting word. That word followers means to imitate. It is a word that we get the English word mime from. What is a mime? Well, a mime is someone who expresses himself in such an exaggerated way without saying a word that nobody can miss it. In other words, they get the message, although it's not spoken, he is expressing himself in an exaggerated way. The ancient Greeks, they had their plays, and they would wear various masks and portraying different parts. And notice, this is the idea here that he's trying to get us to see, that we are to be imitators of God, not pretending that we are God, but we are to imitate Him in the sense that we are following Him, that we see Him as our example, and as a result of that, we are striving to reflect His likeness. And notice the word, therefore. I said at the very beginning, you know, in order to finish up chapter 4, it's really important that we look at chapter 5. And here's the reason. Notice where he says, therefore, and look back at verse 32, verse 31 also. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now listen. Even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. 
for Christ's sake, he hath forgiven you. And so that's why he says what he does. Therefore, because of this, we are to be followers, imitators of Christ. Now notice verse number 2, we see a precept to initiate. The pattern is a person, and we are to imitate him. But here is a precept. He says, and walk in love. Stop right there with those words. Just walk in love. Can you think of any better way to describe the path that God has set before us? I mean, the word love just pretty well sums up absolutely everything about how we ought to live. And mark it down, where love is lacking, Christ is missing. There's something really wrong in a person's life where there is not love for others. Turning your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 43. This is our dear Lord Himself speaking. And he says in verse 43, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now notice carefully what he says next that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. You got it? That ye may be the children of your Father in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publican so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. But notice the statement that he makes there where he says that ye may be the children of your Father. Now, we all surely know enough about the Bible to understand that he's not telling us that this is the means whereby we become the children of God. That's not the point at all. I mean, that would be salvation by works instead of by grace. So he's not telling us if you want to become a child of God, if you want to go to heaven, then you've you've got to do all of these things he just mentioned. You've got to love your enemies and so on and so forth. The idea here is that that we may be recognized by others to be the children of God. And it, and and if we do not love others, if we re, if we refuse to do these things, then he's simply saying there is no evidence or no reason why anybody ought to believe that you're really a child of God. So, well, let's go back to our text here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And here's the precept to initiate. He says, walk in love. And that sums up everything that Jesus said there in Matthew. Let me remind you again, Christ is the standard. And we don't have any right to lower the standard 
We ought to do exactly what he says and what he does. We don't have any right to redefine love. People are doing that very thing. Bev and I was listening to someone on TV or the radio one the other day, and they were redefining, uh, they were redefining uh, uh, the family. Oh, it's a commercial, the Tylenol commercial, I believe. Stop buying Tylenol. Get that old cheap acetaminophen instead of Tylenol. Seriously, it had a commercial, and the commercial had to do with the fact, you know, that it doesn't take a man and a woman, you know, to make a family. All, all it takes is just people loving each other. They got their point across. They wanted to, you know, they wanted to be very clear. They were talking about the homosexual community. That's exactly the point they were trying to make. So in order to justify what they do, people redefine marriage. They redefine the family. They redefine love. Let me tell you, God's not going to let you off the hook that easy. You cannot redefine what love really is. Because the Bible makes it perfectly clear. I love what the English preacher Jeffrey Thomas, he said it like this. Don't you love to hear those old English preachers with that accent, you know? And he said, you look at God and the way he acts and you take that as your model. He shows this extraordinary, over-the-top, absurd generosity to his enemies. Then that's the standard which applies to you too. You can't whittle it away and say, well, I'll try to be like that most of the time. I'll aim for that as far as it's practical in a fallen world. No, says Jesus, you are to imitate God's generosity without reservation, without compromise, without any opt-out clauses. The benchmark for you is God's own character. Be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Who could say it any better than that? That is exactly what's going on here in our message tonight. That He is the standard and we cannot redefine the standard. We can't, we can't change the rules of the game. It is what it is and God's the one that makes that determination. So He says, walk in love. That word walk speaks about our manner of life. The Bible sometimes refers to it as our conversation, which it's not talking about talk the way we use the word conversation, but it has to do with our walk, with our conduct, our manner of life. So he says walk in love. And so here is a, a commandment regarding our daily conduct. In other words, this isn't something that we are to do occasionally. This word in the Greek is in what the scholars call the present imperative. In other words, it's an absolute necessity that ought to be ongoing all of the time. Something we ought to be doing right now, not something we did ten years ago, not something we're going to do tomorrow, but something we're doing right now and something that we keep doing, a present imperative. Walk in love. You know, it's real easy to get all hyped up at Mother's Day or Father's Day or 
on someone's birthday or Christmas time or whatever it is, and we put all of this special emphasis upon demonstrating our love for people at those special times of the year, and then, well, I don't need to tell you what happens the rest of the year. But the Bible says we're to walk in love. This is the way we're to be living Interacting one with another. This is a precept to initiate. This is something that we need to be doing. But look at the latter part. And notice there is a picture here to illustrate. As Christ also hath loved us. I hope you understand that I'm flying through this and it would be real easy to spend two or three hours just on these two verses. But I don't want to get you bogged down and, you know, to the point that your mind is, you know, is waterlogged like the old timers said, you know, the mind can absorb only what the seed of the britches can endure. And so, you know, I don't want to lose your attention. And so we're rushing through this and I understand that. But notice here is a picture to illustrate as Christ. He's setting forth Christ as it were on a pedestal now as Christ. He says, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, we've looked at a command and a challenge so far, right? But here is a comparison that we are to live a life of love. And what is it supposed to look like? Notice, as Christ also loved us. I mean, you try to wrap your mind around that. I mean, if ever there was ever a wow moment, this is it. Walk in love like Jesus did. That, that, that's, we sing a little chorus, you know, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. Well, this is what we're talking about. To be like Him, to be continually loving one another. And whenever you keep this in the context, and that's what we ought to be doing, you keep it in the context, we think of this here as an illustration as well as inspiration. Let me explain what I mean. It's real easy to look at those words as Christ also loved us. Wow, it's such a glorious thing to be inspired by those words, right? It's glorious. Christ also hath loved us. Man, I can spend 10 or 15 minutes just talking about the word us. Christ loved us. Red, yellow, black, and white, the good and the bad, the just and the unjust, and on and on and on. He loved the world. Christ loved us. Not because there was anything good in us, but He just loved us. That's inspiration. But, but what I want you to notice is here, it's one thing to be inspired by this. It is another thing to see this as an illustration for the way that we ought to live. And that's the way it's being used. That's why He makes this statement. He doesn't want you to just be inspired by the fact of the matter. He wants you to be transformed, as it were. To see it as an illustration for your life. And a lot of folks that, you know, they get really excited about that inspiration part. They love, they love worship. 
You know, it's possible to fall in love with worship instead of fall in love with the Lord. A lot of people, oh, I just love to worship. You know, to them, it's kind of like going to a ball game. They love a ball game. It's exciting. It's thrilling. Or they love to go to the opera or whatever it is, you know. Well, you know, it's one thing to love worship. It's another thing, you know, to love the Lord. It's one thing to be inspired by singing the grand old hymns of the faith. It's another thing to see the Word of God and the life of Christ as an illustration for the way that we ought to live and it's time that, that all of us get serious about this. We ought to live a life of love, right? Now, if I say that, everybody agrees with that. I got it on the street corner and they get me a big old sign. We ought to live a life of love. Everybody goes by agrees with that. Even non-Christians agree with that. Gandhi agreed with that. People from every religion would agree with that. We ought to live a life of love. But I want you to notice, the Scripture says a whole lot more than that. It's not just living a life of love, it's loving others, notice, as Christ loved us. That's the pattern that we love others as Christ loved us. Well, as I said, the Bible explains and the Bible exemplifies what real, true love is. It doesn't give us a strict definition, but it certainly gives us plenty of illustrations and Maybe the best description is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I want you to turn there as we close tonight and begin reading in verse number 4, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. I have a long series of messages that takes every word in these verses and goes through it. It takes several months, actually, to get through the series But notice as he describes love, charity, same Greek word that's translated love, charity suffereth long and is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, and whether there be tongues, they shall cease. And whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now notice verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And I hope especially in verses 4 through 8 that you just took note of every phrase there 
that helps us to understand what real love looks like. If you wanted to describe the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you might do it in several different ways. You might look at the fruit of the Spirit that's mentioned over in Galatians chapter 5. That'd be a great way to, you know, to look at His life because, you know, all of those things mentioned there are graces that were found in the life of Christ and should be in ours. But this would be another good way if you wanted to think about describing the kind of love that Christ has for us. And right here is a good demonstration of what that love looks like when you put it in shoe leather. When you live it out every day as you come into contact with other people. But going back to our text, it really just sums it up for itself. Where it says that, you know, we're to walk in love... and, and, and notice, notice the very last words of verse number 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us, and here it is, hath given himself for us. That's what love is, the giving of yourself to others. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. that That's a command for husbands, but let me tell you something. That is the same thing is true of every single child of God. That's not just a responsibility that the husband has. That's the responsibility that every child of God has, that we love others as Christ loved us. How did he love us? He loved us to the extent that he gave himself. Why would he do that? In order to meet our deepest needs. He gave himself, sacrificed himself, offered himself for us. Even though we didn't deserve it, heaven gave its very best in order to supply our needs. All because of the one singular fact that God so loved the world. Walk in love. That's what the worthy walk is all about. It's walking in love, and it affects absolutely every single area of our life. Let's stand together. Father, we pray tonight as this invitation is extended that the Holy Spirit might search our hearts, and as we've looked at this description of love, help each one of us to try to be honest as we can about the manner in which we're living, our daily conduct, our attitude one toward another. And Lord, we realize that Jesus, even as He hung on the cross, having been rejected and so despised and abused, nevertheless, never stopped loving those who mistreated Him. And Lord, help us to have that kind of love one for another. May we love you so much that we love others to such an extent that it doesn't make any difference what they do. They cannot stop us from loving them. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.